what's better than earning money from a nine to five job? It's earning money while you sleep, which is made possible if you start investing. You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Demystified with your very own dynamic duo, Ava Benasaki and August Biniaz. Tune in as we discuss everything real estate, both on the passive and active sides. We feature life-changing stories of today's real estate leaders that will help build your own roadmap to success. This is a show that will lead you to diversified portfolio, a much bigger revenue, and a next level venture that brings you a smooth cash flow. Let's get this episode started. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is our second show of the day. Yes, it is. Now, this is our second show of the day, which is our first shows within 2023. So first shows of the year. But this show will be posted before the other show that we did because we want to get this show out there. There's going to be some recap from last year. There's some market predictions that are going to be happening in 2023. And the most important and exciting news everybody wants to know is what should they do in this interesting year that's upon us? Interest rates are still high. They're still being increased. Inflation is still high. You know, a lot of weird, awkward things are happening in that job market is strong, but we're in a recession or this quasi recession. So yeah, we've been through a lot. Like all of us have been through a lot in the last couple of years, I have well to say. So let's see what Carl has to say about 2023 moving yes, forward. We're very excited about our guest, Carl Whitaker. We've had Carl on our show before and we called, begged and pleaded <laughs> to get him on the show because He's right there. He's in the beast's belly he is, with yeah. all the numbers and data he works for. Real page. He's in the analytics and and they do analysis when market analysis, data analysis. Get all these numbers and give it to their clients so that clients can make sound decisions. These are large institutions, you know, of like the Blackstones of the world. They need these data to yes. make sound decisions for trillions of dollars that's being spent and in, invested into commercial real estate. So excited about our show. Maybe we can give a quick background and get right into it, Ava. What yeah, do you think? Let's do it. Awesome. So guys, today we're joined by Carl Whitaker. Now, Carl is a director of research and analysis for RealPage Inc., where he blends in his passions for geography, economics, and teaching to foster a practical, applied understanding of apartment trends and forecast expectations. So we believe this interview with Carl will bring great value to passive and active investors looking to plan ahead for their 2023 investment strategy. Welcome, Carl. Thanks for being on the show today. Welcome, Carl. Thanks, guys. Really good to see you all again and happy new year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year Happy New Year. Now, Carl, with your role at RealPage and the access to data you have and the data you comprise, we wanted to have you on the show to discuss the economy, rental rates, you know, construction, and your market predictions. But let's first touch on 2022. Like 2022 was a bizarre year for everyone. We were coming out of the COVID pandemic. Inflation started to go through the roof. The Fed increased interest rates astronomically. Maybe you can debrief us of what you saw happening in the 2022 market. Yeah, that's actually great context. That's exactly what we saw was this really bizarre disconnect between what's happening with the economy, at least at the headline level with, you know, things like strong job growth versus what consumers are experiencing, which is high inflation, household formation, essentially freezing. That's true for both single family and multifamily. Obviously, the single family component has some additional layers of complexity with, you know, mortgage rates and people being essentially locked into a 30-year note at such a low interest rate that they're not going to move around as much. But really fascinating disconnect because the 
know, again, some of those headline numbers like job growth look strong, but there's more than meets the eye. And we've actually seen that have a pretty profound impact on multifamily performance. And just a 30-second overview of 2022 multifamily, we saw that rents still grew throughout the year, but we saw that especially in the second half of the year, the pace of growth really slowed down. And in fact, in fourth quarter, we saw that rents were actually beginning to start to show some drops on a quarterly basis. Now, year over year, they're still growing. But if you just look at the winter months, we did see rents contract. We'll get into this a little bit more throughout today, but that's somewhat normal for this time of year. But I think it's a little bit steeper than what we quote unquote normally. We saw occupancy contracted a lot further, candidly speaking, a lot further than even we had initially forecasted that it would. We'll talk about that as well. Construction, there's a lot of construction out there, and we'll talk about why construction is such a big focal point in 2023 in particular. Awesome. Perfect. Awesome. I'm curious, was there like a dark horse or surprises that happened in 2022? Like, was there a region which stood out or rents or cap rates, which went the opposite way than what we really expected? Yeah, I'll actually give two dark horses. One dark horse will be just kind of a national trend that I think caught us all off guard. We're buttoning up our final year-end stats right now. They should release sometime early next week. But this was the first time since 2009 that we saw that annual apartment absorption actually went negative. And that's anytime you're comparing a number to 2009, that obviously brings a lot of questions into the forefront of the discussion. We anticipated that absorption would slow down, but I don't think any of us expected negative absorption throughout the year. So that was kind of a dark horse, at least in terms of trends. Describe Um, what an absorption is to viewers that might not fully understand what that means. Yeah, for sure. So absorption sometimes gets called demand. The way that we define it is absorption is the change in number of occupied units from one period to another. So essentially, you had fewer occupied units at the end of 2022 than you did at the end of 2021. Mm, Got it. Got it. All right. Interesting. Was there any regions that stood out more than others that you were expecting to go the, to zig, but it zagged or anything as such? Yeah, there was a few that stood out to us. One of the things that's been a long-standing talking point has been the strength of the Sunbelt markets, you know, the Phoenixes of the world, the Nashvilles, Atlanta, Dallas, et cetera. We're starting to see that there's a little bit of bifurcation within the Sunbelt markets. And what I mean by that is places like Vegas and Phoenix are really, really cooling off very quickly. And in fact, it wouldn't be surprising if rents do dip negative in terms of year-over-year growth in 2023 in some of those spots. In the middle of the pack, you have some places like Austin and Nashville and Charlotte. I think these are the markets that long-term, nobody questions the strength of the market. You know, people are moving to Nashville. People are moving to Florida. You know, long-term, they're really well-positioned. But here lately, they have been laboring a bit under new construction. And in places like Austin and Nashville, for every 100 units that exist today, 15 are going to be delivered in the next two years. So 15% inventory growth. And in some neighborhoods, that's north of 30%. If you look at downtown Nashville, for instance, 40% of its entire existing stock is under construction. And just think about that, 40% of all existing apartment units are currently being built. So we're starting to see some bifurcation in those areas. And then, you know, lastly, you have some places like Atlanta and DFW, a little bit more established Sunbelt markets. They may not be hitting home runs in terms of 10% plus revenue growth, but there seem to be weathering some of the economic tides or weathering some of the shifts a little bit more, more fully, I would say. 
And then the last point, let's get a little bit more into the 2023 outlook, but we're starting to see some of those kind of quiet, off the radar Midwest markets like Indianapolis and Kansas City. There's stability in times of a lot of change sometimes means that they move up the list in terms of performance. And again, it's not that they're a superstar, 100% absolutely guaranteed home run markets, but when things change quickly, their stability just kind of rises to the top. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some Midwest markets sneak their way into the top 10 for 2023. Our good friend Spencer Gray with Great Capital is probably all ears <laughs> listening to Indi- Indianapolis doing yeah, uh, potentially right. great. So you touched on something great, and this is something I've heard from old timers, people who've been in the business for a long time. And this is a phrase they use, boom and bust cities. And they call Phoenix and Las Vegas boom and bust cities. And it's interesting you say that right away, that as soon as they had this tremendous rent growth in 2023 and before, now they're seeing the slowdown right away in these boom and bust cities. Is, is that fair to say? There? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they still have that boom and bust profile. And I always like the, kind of, I'm going to borrow a phrase here, sometimes zebras don't change their stripes. And we're seeing that Phoenix and Vegas are in some ways behaving different, similar to what we saw in 08 and 09. Although I'll say the mechanisms for why they're behaving the same, the mechanisms are a lot different this time around. Got okay, it. Got right it. On, Love this. Okay, Carl. Now, what were the top metros for population growth in 2022? And do you see trends continuing into 2023? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, what I would say with population growth, migration, et cetera, the top five-ish markets will probably be the top five or so markets for the next five years. But I think the pace at which they grew probably isn't going to be sustainable. And, you know, I'll point out places like Florida. One of the things we saw as a result of the pandemic was a lot of people really accelerated their move. You know, some folks that maybe lived in New York or Illinois were probably going to move to Texas or Florida or Arizona at some point they just made that move more quickly than what would have happened. So I think that you see where the long-standing trends are moving. And I think that people are still going to move to Nashville, the Carolinas, Arizona, et cetera. But the pace at which is going to slow down. Some of the markets that really stood out to us in terms of just overall population growth, of course, Phoenix and capturing a lot of that California exodus. We saw some huge, huge growth in some of the smaller Florida markets, you know, Southwest Florida, Obviously, the Miamis and Tampas of the world grew, but some of those smaller markets on the coast in between those areas grew really quickly. And then as a surprise to no one, Texas remains a fast growth market. And and again, I think we'll continue to see that. Yeah, you talk about those coastal areas in Florida and Ava and I have been looking at properties in Naples, Florida, and they've gone up uh, 2x just in the last little while we've been looking at it. So we're definitely shocked. We thought Vancouver was a fast growing place. But let's talk about property values. Do you guys keep records of property values or are you looking more at cap rates and rent growth? Like how is the property values analyzed by your team and do you keep records of it? And tell us about if there was value increases in 2022 and possible 2023 forecast. Yeah, for sure. So we don't forecast it outright per se. And the data that we analyze actually comes to us via our friends at Real Capital Analytics or MSCI. So we're kind of getting that data through proxy of a data partnership. What we've been seeing in that data is that prices continue to increase through 2022. But what we did see was that buyer appetite kind of hit the pause button, especially in the summer months. And we saw that time of the year where a lot of brokers are really ramping up deals and getting a lot of things finalized. We saw that people just 
kind of hit the pause button. And I think that that's a direct reflection of the unknowns related to the Fed raising rates, what's happening with the economy. It was no coincidence that in the summer we saw that performance started to slow down and that started to affect trade appetite. Now, towards the end of the year, we did see the activity picked up a little bit, at least relative to that summer lull. But we did also see, too, that the bid-ask spread remains pretty significant. And I think what we're what we're seeing on the seller side of the equation is that unless you just are in a dire strait and need to sell an asset, there's not a lot of reason to sell it. It's still cash flowing. You're also in a position where if you take that capital and you're going to deploy it elsewhere, prices are so high that it's often prohibitive. Cap rates in some places are quickly going to sub 4%. So buyers, or I should say sellers, aren't necessarily selling with the same gusto, even if there is some desire to purchase. And I think that through 2023, you're going to continue to see that bid ask be a big topic. But last point, it's probably not a surprise to note to see that cap rates did start to move the opposite direction in the back half of the year as those quantity of deals started to diminish a bit. 100%. I was on it, touching on your point of as far as buyers and sellers and you know what's happening here is I was on a call with a broker and I'm like, what's happening with the market? Are, are anyone selling? He's like, yeah, people are selling. I'm like, hey, I'm seeing some syndicators and other groups bringing assumable loan deals for their investors. Are there assumable loans? Why would someone be selling a product in today's market knowing that the market will turn around again? We're in a somewhat of a down market right now. Why would they be selling an assumable loan today which has a term of three plus years, what would he be selling it? And it's like multiple reasons. People want, want to be exiting it. They don't trust where the economy is going to be in three years. But there are deals that are, we're looking at here internally as well, CPA Capital, that are assumable loans. So there's definitely deals taking place as we speak. But yeah, you're definitely right. Most people are on the sideline with dry powder, hoping to get back yeah. into the market in Q3, Q4 of 2023. Another item you touched on was buyer appetite. Buyer appetite, obviously the syndication side of commercial real estate, the deals that are being syndicated either through syndications or to rely on investors, mostly retail investors. And retail investors have certain sentiments. So the, currently the sentiment is really down for retail investors. Now we felt that with our investors, now we have a very close connections with our investors. We do have somewhat of a monopoly because we create exposure for U.S. real estate, commercial real estate to Canadian investors. So we're one of the handful of firms that provide syndicated deals on the U.S. side for Canadian investors. So, And we were very selective on our deals. But we still saw that the investor sentiment is definitely down. So if equity is hard, debt is obviously expensive, That's gonna what's that going to do is it's going to just reduce the, the buyer's appetite. So I want to touch on those two items. Great. Do you right want on. to touch on? Yeah, good points, August. I wanted to talk, you kind of touched on this when we first started, but rental rate, kind of where they're at. And obviously, as multifamily owners, you know, we carefully have been watching the rent growth numbers for three main reasons. And one of them is kind of getting the sense of profits and returns. And the third is really, if rates go up as they are, investors and owners might want to know if it's time to kind of jump. So let's discuss what's happening with rents right now. And again, you've kind of touched on this, but we dive a little deeper and they were on such a rapid pace upwards, but have they slowed down? One quick thing I want to say. hit their plateau? I want to say one quick thing. This is something we went through on the deal that we were doing in Arizona and we spent a lot, a, a lot of time onto it and resources onto it. And we were underwriting the deal and we have to make assumptions in our underwriting model of what the growth is going to be for the yeah. term, for the five-year term that we're holding this asset. So we had it at 4% rent growth. We brought it down to 3%. Then we're talking to brokers. Where do you think the growth is going to be? So 
that's a moving target. So for us as investment groups, knowing where the rent growth is going to be at or the projected rent growth or assumed rent growth is a very important number. And when you're looking in the rear view mirror and you see rent growth at 10%, it's very difficult to try to your best to be conservative and do 3%, but that's what, what you, have, you to have to do. You, you have, have to do to. that in the yes. current market. But yeah. just want to touch, add that before Carl touches on this point again. Yeah, that's really prudent advice because for 2023, 2024, even though we're, we're still buttoning up the final touches on our forecast for the year, we're probably going to say about two and a half to three percent rent growth in most markets outside of, you know, again, a handful of outliers that are maybe on a different trajectory. Now, there's two perspectives there. The optimist would say, hey, three percent, that's pretty normal. You know, you take the 2010s decade average for rent growth, probably about three, maybe three and a half percent. But you look at where we were the past two years and the pessimist is going to say, what happened to my double digit rent growth? And I think it's just kind of finding that soft landing point. We're reverting back to more normal trends. We touched on it earlier, but again, fourth quarter rents contracted nationally about 1%. Now that was between third quarter and fourth quarter, but quarterly contractions in the winter months tend to be pretty common. Not a lot of renters are shopping. You know, obviously the holidays are at the forefront of everyone's minds. Folks that live in Chicago and Boston, about the last time you want to make a move is in December or January. You know, some of the seasonal patterns actually have a very tangible impact on how rents expand. Now, on a year-over-year basis, again, we're still seeing rents are up and they are growing. It's just that the pace at which they're growing is slowing. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but yeah, the pace at which rents are growing is coming down a little bit. Now, the one thing I would add for 2023 within context of you know rent growth and what's happening there one of the things that we flagged is a really key trend to watch for the next 12 months is if rent growth is more quote unquote normal let's call it 3 to 4% 2 to 4% in most markets are expenses and the way that those are growing also going to be quote unquote normal we've seen that expenses over the past 2 years to nobody's surprise have gone up astronomically with just the rising tide of inflation but if rent growth was enough to offset expense growth the past two years, what happens if expense growth outpaces rent growth? In that case, obviously, you have a part of NOI where that's going to start to erode a bit. But how much NOI erosion can some folks weather and maintain? I think that's where you may start to see some distress deals come up on the market. Maybe some, I don't want to say panic sales per se, but I think that's where you'll start to see choice properties, choice locations, where the numbers start to show a little bit more movement than what we've seen over the past two years. Where sponsors assumed certain rent growth, and then, but they didn't assume the similar type of expense growth that exists because that goes hand in hand with inflationary environment. That's where you see potential issues. I totally agree with you. Now, I just want to compliment Carl here really quickly. Your LinkedIn posts are incredible. They're educational. Fabulous. And like just on point. So you know, when I was kind of looking through some of your LinkedIn posts, you did a post about property, lease up property absorption. Can you talk to us about what is lease up property absorption and why is this metric important, please? Yeah, of course. So there's a few different components here, but starting just at the very, very top of the list, lease up properties are essentially properties that have just been built and are welcoming their first round of residents into the property. So most properties are considered in quote unquote lease up until call it 80, 85% filled. And what happens is developers will build the asset. Most developers will say, once we get to a certain point of filled, we would like to sell this asset to a 
a different ownership or management company. Now, some development companies also manage and operate in-house, so that's not true for everyone, but lease-up properties are essentially newly delivered properties that have just finished or are soon finishing construction. The reason that they're an important barometer for future performance is how quickly or how well lease-up properties are being absorbed or how many residents are moving into those properties a signals where demand currently is, especially at a specific price point, and that price point would be top of the market product. Obviously, the economics of building a new asset, you know, just the land acquisition costs, the cost of material, labor, et cetera, means that you have to deliver at a essentially a prohibitive price point based on, or I shouldn't say prohibitive, you have to deliver at a price point that is just inherently going to be higher than what the existing market is. And because of that, it can also be a proxy indicator for near-term Class A property performance. And for some folks that maybe aren't as familiar with Class A, you could think of that as just ballparking it here. The top 20% of properties in a market based on that top 20% rent profile, those would be your quote-unquote Class A properties. So if lease-up absorption is starting to lag or slow down, sometimes that can be a bellwether for what happens with class A properties further down the line as again, lease-ups are measuring stick or mile marker, if you will, for what demand looks like in the class A space. One final point there, what's happening in class B, which would be your, call it middle 60% of properties in a market based on their rent, what's happening with class B and class C, those trends can differ from class A. And I think we will see that as a trend that continues through 2023 because we're looking at the largest year of construction for multifamily that we've seen since RealPage began tracking the market, which was 30 years ago. But you'd have to go back to census data in the 70s and 80s to see as much multifamily product under construction as there is today. So I think Class A has some headwinds, if you will, to work through. It doesn't mean that every Class A property is suddenly doomed for a weak year, but with demand slowing and with a lot of supply coming online, it means a lot more competition. Couple of questions there. What defines under construction? That means physically being built or is the entitlement, is rezoning or is applying for permits considered under construction? Good question. And that's actually a good distinction to make. Under construction means that it's physically moved dirt to some degree. So whether it's one day away from being fully completed or if it just started scraping earth, then it's under construction. We do track permitted, entitled, et cetera properties, but those would be considered planned in our data. And just the under construction number is, again, the highest we've ever tracked. It's somewhere north of 950,000 units across the nation. That is unbelievable. Over the last 30 years, last year was the most under construction for multifamily. Mind-blowing. And was there a region that had was on top of the list, or do you recall? We keep doing these questions that Carl, expecting to know everything. I know he is brilliant mind, he has those but numbers uh, at the tip but, of his but is there was there a region that you recall being on top where most developments were happening? Yeah, it's kind of a it's it's funny you say it because it's kind of a chicken and an egg situation because most of the areas that had the most population growth are also the areas at which most development was happening and. Is development happening there because people are moving or people moving there because they have a place to move to? You know, again, it's kind of chicken and an egg. Those are, to borrow a stats term, those are obviously going to be highly correlated. Where we see the most development happening nationally are markets, I would call them the rising star sunbelt markets, Austin, Nashville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, et cetera. 
places like Atlanta, Dallas, Miami, your more established metros, they still have a lot of construction underway too. A couple of other markets that I would throw in there though, Phoenix has something like 35, 40,000 market rate multifamily units under construction. Salt Lake City is another market that has a ton of inventory underway. The area, it's almost easier to answer the areas that don't have a lot of construction now that I think about it. And again, those are going to be some of your slow and steady Midwest metros, some of those Rust Belt metros over to the Mid-Atlantic. And then a few California markets are still relatively quiet on the construction front where maybe entitlements are a little bit more prohibitive, maybe some more legislative headwinds and not to mention just more expensive to build in. Got it. Florida. I've heard lots of development in Florida as well. I'm not sure if that's on top of the list. Now, do you guys look at what was the impetus? What was the reasoning for such amount of, was it was it cheap debt? Was it, what was the reason for 2022 to be such a high amount? Because when you say under construction, you, disc- you mm-hmm. define what construction was. They must have started that process in 2019 or even earlier to be under construction in 2020 or at least 2020 or sometimes there. I guess this is a more of a, assumption but what or do you guys have some data of why did that year ended up being such a strong year for development of multifamily yeah so what we've been hearing by and large is that a you know again to your point equity was debt rather was relatively cheap it was easy to obtain but i think more importantly if you zoom out and take into account just the country you look at demographics you look at the housing market we've been pretty undersupplied in terms of total housing for some time now. And you look at- Six million, you always hear six million doors, this phrase, six million doors undersupplied, but keep going. I hear that all the time. And that's exactly it. You just, you know, you've had such a long period, some of which was a result of the Great Recession and kind of that once bitten, twice shy mentality where the banks, it was a little bit harder to get secure some funding early in the 2010s for new development. And there's a couple different reasons, but nevertheless, I think the idea that renter appetite has been robust, there's been a lot of demand for rental housing product, but probably most importantly is just that we don't have enough housing in the country and multifamily housing fills a very specific niche because of its density, because of its ability to house a lot of people at once. Multifamily housing has been something that the nation's needed for some time to get back to a more level supply demand balance. And I think you'll start to see that happen over the next few years. You know, I think that development starting to catch back up, but we just need more housing and especially more housing at a more affordable price point. That's a little bit trickier because that, that requires some government subsidies and creative ways to deliver housing at say a class B or B plus price point. Not impossible, but very difficult to do so. Very true. Very All right. true. All right, Carl, with all the data you follow, what regions do you think will be the leading markets investors should keep an eye on? So for 2023, our current market leaders or regional leaders, Florida markets, specifically South Florida, call it south of Orlando, which, you know, obviously the vast majority of Florida belongs to that. But everything south of Orlando, we have forecasted towards the top of the list. Does that include Orlando or no? So we are including Orlando within that. Now, I would say that we think that moderations impacted essentially every market over the past 12 or so months. Performance has started to cool off. Florida's just cooled off a little bit more slowly. We think that 2024 in the Florida markets is where you start to see places like Orlando start to maybe underperform slightly. But again, long term, if you go three plus years out, 
the demographic story is still strong. Population growth story is still strong. Economic growth, you know, the demand side of the equation looks really good. So we're saying, again, Central and South Florida, that's a market leader. Places like DFW and Atlanta, you know, your big, big South region markets. But we've also actually pinned, maybe to some folks' surprise, we've pinned Southern California as a spot of the country that we think will outperform in some ways. Obviously, there's a little bit more more there than meets the eye, but you look at like San Diego, Los Angeles, Anaheim, even Riverside or the Inland Empire, which is kind of a off the radar market in some ways. We think that Northern California, the Pacific, the Pacific Northwest, if you know, we generously include that in the mix, some of the tech sector concerns, maybe some of the unknowns with how many people migrated out in the work from anywhere environment. Those parts of California and the Pacific Northwest probably underperform next year. Midwest, kind of like we led off with, it's just so characteristically slow and steady that it may just may just kind of hover around the average. But if the average moves down by nature, those markets move up. One last one, too, that's kind of surprised me, just being totally honest, has been New York and northern New Jersey. If you go just across the river there, west into Newark, or what we consider Newark, but Jersey City, Hoboken, et cetera, that part of the country actually led for fourth quarter rent growth and was one of the few spots in the country that didn't see rents decline. So I think New York has proven its ability to recover as a market. And I think you're seeing New York really start to behave similar to the pre-pandemic New York than it was in the 2020-2021 New York. Great. Really, really exciting stuff. Let's touch on one last point before our finishing comments. Let's talk about BTRSFR and for viewers and listeners who are not familiar with this abbreviations is basically built to rent single family rental is a new asset class somewhat new asset class to commercial real estate really started post a gfc 2008 swaths of single family homes being sold pennies on a, do- a dollar there there people had defaulted on their mortgages and wall street comes in and buys thousands hundreds of thousands of single family homes and the plan is just to sell it after the market turns around and they're like, hey, we could rent these things while we're keeping them. So they start rent- renting it. And single family homes as a community, as a portfolio, start behaving just like multifamily. And they had invested in multifamily. Blackstone, actually, they started as, with leverage buyouts and mergers and acquisitions, but they have higher allocation into real estate now than they do with buyouts. So they started buying single family. They were used to multifamily already, but it created really spawn this new asset class, which is BTRSFR, an asset class that we were working on over the last five months with a, with a deal we had in Arizona. Talk to us about this asset class and are you seeing more demand for data interest from investment groups, sponsors, syndication groups when it comes to this asset class? Maybe touch on BTRSFR and what have you seen in the, other than me calling you and, and asking you questions. <laughs> Aside from that, what have you seen in this space? Yeah, BTRSFR has been really interesting because up until 2020, I don't think any of us had even heard of that. You know, it was just such a nascent space. And here as of late, it's been a big talking point. And I think that there's smoke where there's fire in the situation, meaning that it's not just a flash in the pan trend. I think you're actually going to see this take hold as a quickly established institutional grade investment class that, again, serves a very specific need within the market. You know, one of the things that we've seen in our data, whether through some of our different various tools that we've used, we've seen that to some degree, 
the choice to purchase a single family home is just as much of a life stage decision as it is an economic one. If you're looking to start a family, if you're looking to make a move out to the burbs, you know, if you're looking to establish yourself and put down roots more fully, then oftentimes that's a predecessor for moving into a single family home. Well, here as of late, obviously interest rates kind of clouded the outlook for more so than just interest rates, the availability of single family inventory at that true starter home price point is just next to impossible to find. If you look at the single family market and what's available today, it's usually obviously market dependent, but here in Dallas, you drive around, the homes that are available are at the $600,000 and up price point. And somebody just first time home buying usually isn't able to break into the market at that price point. So I think that's where BTR and SFR is going to serve a very specific need and a very strong need of the public, which is providing a single family residence with the flexibility of rental housing, not having to worry about maintenance. We actually have been spending the summer remodeling a house here, and I cannot tell you how many things you don't account for as as a homeowner, especially for remodels. You know, I think we spent $5,000 on just plumbing over the past six months. And it's, again, these things you don't necessarily account for within the build to rent space. I think you get a little bit more of the positive of the rental side of the market, not having to worry about maintenance, one-year lease terms as opposed to a 30-year mortgage that you might not be able to back out of. And then you also get some of the plus side of the single family, which is you know a yard, some of these more spacious areas, you get a little bit more of a, a suburban lifestyle, if you will. And some, for some people, that's a need that hasn't been filled that is now filled through the build to rent space. Now, as far as the data, we actually just started tracking the space in earnest about a year ago. So we're just still in the early days of it. But I think that also kind of signals where the questions have been from and how recent, I should say, that the space interest has been that, again, up until 2020, I don't think I'd ever heard the term. And now it's in tons of conversations that we have. Amazing. Amazing. August is talking about BTR, SFR, like a year and a half ago, right? Yeah, I've been talking about it for a while. My logic on it is if you have an option to pay a similar price for a brand new or newer single family home with two car garage, 1500 square feet, three bedrooms, have your own privacy, live in a community of other renters as well, or an option to live in an apartment complex, it's a no-brainer. So that's my, I really believe in it. I come from a single family development background and what have you. But yeah, no, really appreciate it, Carl. Talk to us about RealPage. What is the bulk of your guys' business? Obviously, there are some data that you have that I subscribe to and it's free data. A lot of the content you create that we really appreciate. But what is the number one consumer for you guys? What is your client avatar? Who comes to RealPage to? Who do you provide services to? Yeah, absolutely. So RealPage overall, we're as a service company or SaaS company, and it really touches on all facets of multifamily property management. You know, everything just really horizontally integrated, I guess I should say vertically integrated in that regard. Specifically, our function or my function within the company is our data and analytics group. So we're servicing a lot of questions such as the ones that y'all have been asking thus far. We've got X amount of capital. We're looking to deploy it. Tell us why we should deploy it here or here. You know, so there's there's all sorts of things. I, I should say all sorts or there's all different facets of multifamily property management, ownership, investment, et cetera, that real page services. And this is people that can actually hire your services per deal basis or per situation, or this is just the bigger, larger firms? Do you cater to 
everyone who comes through or how does it work? Yeah, good question. It's a little bit of both just by nature of scale economies of scale, you know, obviously tend to have 90% of our business is the big national players, but there is this component that we do offer individualized services. We have a investment management platform that caters to the small and medium businesses or SMB businesses, mid-market businesses. So that'll cover there's that, you know, operate up to 2000 units all the way up to operators that have 150,000 plus units nationally. So really does kind of touch on all different components of the industry. It just depends on what the client's need is and what they're looking for. Great. We use the RealPage IMS uh, investment <laughs> portal here at CPI Capital. Right. Man, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate bringing you on. We wish to be able to bring you on again, maybe in a couple quarters, see how things are, where things are at. We really appreciate your wisdom and knowledge and expertise. Thank you for being with us, Carl. Thanks so much, Carl. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Hold me to my prediction. We'll see how they turn out. Oh, trust I'll us. Be, we'll, we'll be holding you to it. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope this conversation enlightened you on how to win big in this highly profitable and risk adverse space. Get on your feet and embrace this world that offers so many opportunities just waiting for you out there. Continue your journey to becoming a savvy real estate expert by subscribing to the show at cpicapital.ca. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and share with your friends. See you on the next one.